This is Dennis Ramondi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast and YouTube channel, uh, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Uh, if you're uh, wanting to find us on the YouTube channel, uh, just go to YouTube and type in uh, Spirit Matters Talk. And um, uh, whether you're listening or watching, please hit the subscribe button. Uh, we have about 300 shows in our archives, and those are free and open to everyone. And for those that have contributed to keep us on the air, thank you very much. And if anybody would like to do that, just go to spiritmatterstalk.com and it'll tell you what to do. I uh, have a fascinating guest today, Akash Kapoor. He is the author of uh, the book, Better to Have Gone, Love, Death, and the Quest for Utopia in Oroville. Uh, he's a true scholar. He's a graduate of Harvard University and was a Rhodes Scholar, has a degree from Ox graduate degree from Oxford. And um, he was a columnist, uh, letter from India uh, for the International New York, New York Times and the recipient of the Whiting Grant. Uh, so today we want to discuss his book, amongst other things. Uh, and I want to thank you very much for taking the time, Akash, for taking the time to come on with us today. Of course, it's my pleasure. Akash, uh, I heard your interview with Terry Gross and I was intrigued and thought it would be great to have you on our program. We're dedicated to uh, topics around contemporary spirituality. And a lot of our listeners have either uh, tangible or spiritual connections to India. And Sri Aurobindo has had a big influence on many of us. And so um, your experience growing up in Oroville and uh, the memoir, which sounds you know, really intriguing, uh, sounded like a very interesting topic for us to explore. Give us a little bit about, I know your whole book is your, your story you know, of growing up in Oroville and going back. Tell us a little about the, the reason you wrote the book and what the sort of central a premises, and then we can yeah, yeah, and, and also I think most of our listeners or viewers probably are not uh, tremendously uh, familiar with Oroville, so just some yeah, uh, uh, some points on that. Sure. Um, so you know, Oroville hard to summarize. It's it's a it's an I call it an intentional community um, located in South India. Uh, based very much on the uh, teachings and the philosophy of Shurabindo. It's, it's, I think it's intended as a, a kind of laboratory for his teachings. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a complex place. You know, it, it can be simplified as a utopia, but it's not a utopia. It's a human kind of organic lived reality. Uh, it's been around for a long time now. It's got about 3,000 people in it, and it's been around for more than 50 years. So uh, I grew up there. Um, as did my wife, actually, who features very much in this book. We both grew up there. Um, and then we, we each went our separate ways in the world. I, uh, as you mentioned earlier, I, I, went, I was a student in, in the U.S. and then England. Um, what, what happened is that we were living in, in, in Brooklyn at some point. Um, and my wife had a kind of unusual history in Oroville, which is sort of the central premise of the book, which is that her um, mother and her adoptive father, who was very much like a father to her, uh, died in quite strange circumstances when she was uh, about 14 years old and she was adopted by his family and left Orville and, and it was always sort of mysterious what had happened and I think it was that mystery that in many ways drew us back to Orville 
um, the, the attempt to sort of solve that or uncover that or figure out what had happened. So we got into that. Um, and then what happened is that I discovered a cache of letters and diaries uh, from both of them, both of, both of the dead people. Uh, and that just sort of opened up worlds, not only uh, concerning their deaths and their lives, but the wider kind of social world of Oroville in, in the 70s and the 80s and what was going on in the community. And so the book grew out of that. And, and uh, when you went back, was it a big, big decision uh, uh, to go back? Was, was there a lot of conflict uh, um, uh, between you and your wife or not between you and your wife within each of you uh, internally in, in, in making that return and actually ultimately deciding to continue to live there? Not really, you know, like we were pretty young and the young can be kind of impulsive and don't think through the consequences of things very carefully. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think we just sort of, you know, we just kind of like, we did it. And to, you know, also I should say that part of the reason we moved back, part of it was very much for Oroville and to be back in Oroville, but also we were very attracted to India. I mean, this was the early 2000s um, and it felt like India was really changing and there was, a lot, there was a lot happening in India. And so, you know, I think some of it was actually just kind of homesickness. Um, and, we, and we wanted to be back there. And I, I'll say one more thing was that this was also um, when the Iraq war was happening in the US and we felt very alienated by that. And like, we didn't want to be part of that, the second, the second Gulf War. Mm. And it probably wasn't safe. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't that it was unsafe. It just felt like, it just felt like there was something very strange going on and there were very strange forces kind of unleashed and, and afoot and, and it felt weird to be part of that. I mean. I, I reference in the book, I remember one day riding the subway in New York and seeing, um, it, was a, it was a spread of, of images from the Gulf War in the New York Times of sort of soldiers in an orange death, dust storm. And I thought, my God, there's this crazy war going on. I just, I don't want to be part of this. I don't relate to this. This, is, this seems like such a horrible mistake, which of course it turned out to be. And India is a very big place. You could have gone there. You could have lived in Pondicherry near the ocean. But you went back to Oroville where you had grown up, where, where there were no doubt um, mixed feelings because you probably you know, had happy memories of childhood, but there was also darkness in, in what had happened to your wife's family. And uh, I, I've spoken to a few people who, who go to Oroville on a regular basis and are Sri Aurobindo sort of uh, devotees. And they were curious about why you went back, if you, you know, honestly, and, and what it was like to, to go back and live as a grown-up in, in, you know, in the intentional community you grew up in, which had, you know, a, you write about in your book as having, a, you know, a, a lot to going for it, but also some dysfunction. Yeah, I mean, I should say that the darkness... Uh, was certainly true for my wife. And so that was, it was probably more complicated for her. In my case, um, there wasn't a lot of darkness, to be honest. I mean, I had a pretty magical childhood in Oroville and, and I felt, and, and, and still feel, I mean, it's a complicated place and I'm an adult and I see the complexity of it, but um, I was very attached to it. And I, and I, and I very much felt its potential. Um, and also I had, I had a lot of emotional ties there, of course, you know, with friends and, and family members. Um, so it wasn't really such a hard choice for me to go back. I mean, I always, 
I always figured, especially with the world having changed, that there was a way to live in Oroville while still being connected to the world. I mean, I think for the early pioneers, including my parents, who set up in Oroville in the 70s in the kind of pre-internet age, it was really a much bigger choice. It, it really meant kind of cutting off the world, right? I mean, I, you know, those were the days where, I mean, I remember even when I was a kid, and this was later, if you wanted to call somebody in America, you had to book a trunk call far ahead, and it was, it was right. just very hard. That wasn't the case when we went back. You know, I could read the New York Times every day. I, I could like email my friends in the world. Um, so it wasn't, there wasn't that much conflict within me. And then the other thing I would say is that one of the great success stories in Oroville, which was very compelling in terms of returning, and this is sometimes unacknowledged, is the amazing ecological restoration yeah. work and green work mm -hmm. that they've done there. So when people think of Oroville, they tend to focus a lot on the kind of spirituality and and you know, and, and then sometimes if they're in a negative frame of mind, they focus on all this, all the ways that the spiritual ambition has fallen short and that everybody's still like a mere mortal. But really, one of the great unacknowledged successes is that they took this desert and they turned it into probably the most successful reforestation project in India. And particularly if you know something about the, the kind of environmental calamity that exists in most of India and the unlivability of most Indian cities. I mean, Orville is a wonderful place to live just at a kind of yeah. geographical, physical level. Yeah, let me add to that, Dennis, a minute. I was there twice. And the last time I was there is just before the pandemic uh, became news, last January of 2020. And I, I took a tour group to India, and we were there for a day. And one of the things that did impress everybody was the ecological commitment of the people at Oroville. And... Um, the availability of uh, organic food at the restaurants and, and all that sort of thing. Um, how has it changed since your childhood when it was first being set up as a, as a, uh, as a utopian sort of vision? And how is it different now? Yeah, it's changed a lot. I mean, you know, 50 years at this point, it's 53 years is, is a long time. Um, and so the early days, I mean, well, much more intense for better and for worse. Uh, first of all, you know, the, 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 the sort of natural habitat was very, very harsh. There were none of these trees. It was, it was really hot and water, you know, water was, it was, it was a sort of luxury. Um, there was none of this kind of like thriving organic food industry that you just referred to. It was, it was pretty harsh. Um, it was much smaller. There was also a kind of intensity in the idealism of, of, of the early founders, which, as I described in my book, was for better and for worse. Um, now, you know, 50 years later, it's much more settled. It's much more, if, if, if some people would lament that because they would say it's become more bourgeois and, and kind of middle class. And, and I do understand, I do understand that complaint. I think idealism is a complicated thing. I described some of the very difficult kind of dangerous places that that too much idealism led Orville into when I was a kid. Um, and so you have the kind of like the, the purity of the fire, but you also have, you know, the burning quality of the fire. And I think that mm -hmm. that, that Orville is, I wouldn't say it's a normal place because it's still a very unusual place, but it's, it's more normal than it was when I was growing up. I mean, the other thing is that the schools, when I was a kid, Education was a very controversial thing there. And I, and I described this in my book, the schools were shut down. There was, a, at, there was at a certain point, there was a movement against education because it was seen as old world. And that was something, I mean, it was very harmful. And a lot of people are still bearing the scars of that. And now uh, Orville has excellent schools, has these you know multicultural schools for the community. Moved to another town. 
uh, when uh, that was the case so that you could attend school? I did. My parents pulled me out for a few years and we moved to Pondicherry and I enrolled in the, in the ashram school there, which was more solid. But many people, including my wife, uh, didn't. And they had sort of improvised educations. You know, there were always certain adults that were, that were continuing right. education. Um, and so some of, them, some of them emerged okay and some of them didn't. It was sort of luck of the draw. And a lot of it had to do with how persistent their parents were on insisting that, that they, they have an education. Mm-hmm. Akash, I, I wanted to ask you about <clears throat> uh, the French woman, Humira uh, uh, Alfasa, uh, referred to as mother in the community. Did you have a relationship? Uh, did you have a lot of interaction with her uh, as you were growing up and living there? And um, how did she set the tone uh, for the community? And when she passed, uh, were there a lot of big changes that took place? Yeah, so I was born, I was born about a year after she passed away. So I, I never you know, met her directly. That being said, she, I would say she played a major role in my life because she was the founding figure of Oroville. Um, and, and many, many people I grew up with were, you know, very reverential and had interacted with her and had had, had life-changing sort of moments, you know, just by meeting her once. So it was, of course, she was, she was a huge presence um, in my life. Um, I think, you know, the, the question of what happened after she passed away is, is, is really interesting. And it goes to the heart, not only of, of Oroville's history, but intentional communities in general, uh, because the community went through some very, very tough times after she passed away. Um, uh, and that, that's often what happens in such communities that they sort of, as long as there's a founder to kind of hold it together and who is able to command, you know, loyalty and make decisions, both big and small, things kind of seem to be headed in, in, a, in, a, in a positive direction. And then when they fall apart, all kinds of human egos and rivalries and, you know, just our kind of chronic inability to get along and our tendency to disagree and, and bicker and fight come out. And so I would say, Again, I write about this in the book. I would say that Orville went through a near-death experience in the 70s. It really, it really almost fell apart, and they were right. very difficult times. Um, and I think, you know, it's it's pretty amazing that Orville is still there 53 years later yeah. because, because it wasn't it wasn't a given. It really wasn't a given, especially when we look back at it now and realize, you know, what was going on. There was a lot of factionalism and, and infighting and sort of conflict between the ideological purists and, and the people who were, who were more yeah. realist. So. In, in my experience, a lot of uh, spiritual organizations, especially ones that have communal uh, uh, component to it, after the founder is gone, there's a sort of um, battle between the orthodox and the, and the more liberal kind of contingencies. And, right. and sometimes the orthodoxy wins and things go really get very cultish and... Um, destructive and sometimes the the liberal faction wins and it loses touch with the original uh intent in time so it is that kind of what happened and is any of that still uh extant at in oroville yeah i mean that's that's absolutely what happened that's a perfect kind of you know archetypal description mm-hmm. of, of what happened in oroville and, and i agree that this is this is a common a common trope and there was a major it was a major battle between, you know, the, the purists and the less pure. Um, and I, you know, in my book, I pretty clearly come down on the side of, of the of the non-purists because I'm not. I'm ha- partly having lived through those years. I'm not a, a, a great believer in orthodoxy and and sort of rigid ideology. I just think that when confronted with like the complexity of, of humanity and human nature, it always ends up in a bad place. This is sort of my my view of 
not only these communities, but of history. I mean, you know, this is this is what's played out, whether you're talking about the French Revolution or, or Cambodia or the Soviet right. Union. This is this is what we see happening. Um, the question about whether it's still playing out is an interesting one, because certainly you still have these these two sort of I, I don't want to say factions because they're not so well defined, but, you know, these two tendencies within the community, by its definition, a place like Oroville attracts people who are true believers and, and truly committed. And they may, by the way, be serial true believers and serial true commit committers. You know, they may have they may have moved from one cause to another one. Um, but yeah, it creates conflict within the community. Um, and I and I think, I mean, I've had a lot of notes since the book came out from, from people in the community. I was, I was quite nervous about how the book would be received. I've had a lot of notes uh, that are fairly positive and with people saying that they see resonances uh, in the current moment with, you know, what happened all those decades ago, I think that COVID and the difficulties of COVID have shaken things up as they have in much of the world. And it's interesting because many of the sort of uh, th forces that you might've seen emerge at a kind of grand political level around the world, you know, there's certain extremism and, and, and things that have come out around the world, you see playing out in, in smaller communities too. Right. Uh, I'm curious, uh, is uh, the children in Oroville now, uh, where do they attend school? Do they have their own school? And if so, what's that like? And uh, do you have kids uh, in the school? And I would imagine from uh, uh, my own experiences in, in similar situations that within the school, uh, that's where you also uh, get a lot of battling between the Orthodox and the non-Orthodox and whatever the belief or spiritual system is. Yeah, I mean, the schools are actually are, are great. Like I've been, my, my kids have been in school there from, you know, from the age of two, basically, they started in pre-crash. And, and so I'm, I'm a great, I'm a great champion of the schools. I mean, I think it's wonderful. I think that they have all the best of kind of like community schools in the sense of devoted teachers who are, you know, essentially part of your extended family and really care about the kids. Um, combined with an with an oddly kind of multicultural feel because Orville is this very international town. So right. I saw the makeup of the community; it's amazingly international. Yeah, well, that, and that's part of the idea, right? Human unity and right. stuff. So, um, and also, you know, a pretty good balance between structure, which was lacking when I was a kid, but not too structured, right? Like not teaching to exams, and so structure, but also like openness and cultivating kind of you know creativity or ways of thinking. So I am, um, I'm, I, I think the schools are really great. Really, I do. And I think it's one of the great successes in the community. Um, those battles that you referred to are certainly, you know, education is often a battlefield for that, that kind of conflict. They played out very much in the 70s and the early 80s. Um, what's, they, still, they still exist in the community. What, what, what I see happening is that they don't, don't tend to play out that much within a given school, thankfully, although it could happen. People tend to come and like start their own schools. So actually, you have a variety of schools in the community, some of which are much more open-ended and less structured, and some of which are quite structured. Uh, and this, you know, leaves a little room both for both schools to exist without falling apart on the conflicts, and also for parents to kind of choose about, uh, you know, which 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 school they want to put their kids in and which path they want to follow. Right. I, I want to follow up, Phil. In the school that your kids are in, is there a specific spiritual practice that's uh, uh, incorporated into the school? And uh, what grade does the school go up to? And is it a big transition when kids uh, go to college, which, which is something you did yourself coming from that school? Yeah, um, there isn't really, I mean, there, you know, thankfully there hasn't been an attempt to really impose a kind of like ideology or orthodoxy on kids. I mean, I, you know, there is some amount of tension about like 
how much of the mother in Sri Aurobindo should they be reading and at what age? And I think there are probably people in the community who think that maybe the school should be doing more of that because after all, isn't that the purpose of Aurobindo? And then you would have some people involved in education or some parents who say, well, you know, sure, expose them to spiritual ideas and, and the notion of spiritualism. But in my experience, kids need to discover this stuff for themselves. I mean, I was, I was spoon fed it a little bit as a kid. Uh, and honestly, it took me like 30 some years to let go of the resulting skepticism. You know, it was the process of, of writing this book that like helped me kind of like turn to faith with like a slightly more kind of positive approach. So I, I really, so, you know, the kids do yoga, they learn to meditate, they, they sort of, you know, they learn about mind body connections, but there isn't too much, a, a, you know, attempt to impose right. sort of teachings on them. Uh, the transition, yeah, it, it can be difficult. I mean, I did it when I was in my late 16s, almost 17, I went to boarding school in the US. Um, you know, it wasn't easy. I mean, I would suppose, I would guess academically was actually one of the easier parts, which is probably a testament to the quality of the schools. Obviously, socially and culturally, it's a pretty big leap. Um, I would suggest that maybe today it's less of a leap again, given sort of the internet and the global culture and the fact that for better or for worse, kids in Orville are on Snapchat and Facebook and right. Instagram and things like that. Uh, whereas I was not watching like all the American TV shows that my friends spoke about <laughs> when I moved to America in the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, for, the, for the listeners and viewers who are not familiar with it, I should point out that um, Pondicherry is this charming coastal town that was a French colony. Uh, and that's where uh, Sri Aurobindo went to get away from the uh, British rulers when he was a young revolutionary. And then de he developed an ashram there uh, as a spiritual force and a spiritual teacher and was revered in India. And when he died in 1950, it was after that that the woman known as the mother established Oroville. So Sri Aurobindo was never there. And the ashram in Pondicherry and the schools uh, around it and all that are really centered around Sri Aurobindo's spiritual teachings and his integral yoga. And my impression is that that connection is less pronounced in Oroville, even though people often describe it as a, as a cult. That doesn't sound like an accurate uh, description because it's it's pretty decentralized and focused on how do we live together as opposed to following a teaching right. at this point anyway. It may have been different in your childhood. Is that a correct assumption? I think so. I mean, you know, I think that it would be, I think that the teachings are quite central, but in a more private way. So there's uh -huh. not a lot of there's not a lot of public ceremony. And again, there's tensions. There are people who probably think there should be more of it. But I would, you know, the teachings of Sri Aurobindo and the mother are, are quite central to many people's lives. And there's a lot of private effort to, to participate in what's referred to as the yoga, right? Which is a form of self-cultivation self and spiritual advancement. Um, but, it, but it is more private and it is less regimented than a kind of traditional spiritual retreat. I mean, Sri Aurobindo had, had this, you know, beautiful line, like part of his... The line was all life is yoga, um, and because part of part of his 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 sort of you know philosophy or his his teaching was to sort of extract Indian spirituality from this sort of ascetic withdrawal from the world that it had fallen into, and to infuse everyday life with 
more spirituality or your spiritual purpose. And so I think, you know, for a lot of people in Oroville, building the city is a form of yoga. It's actually a spiritual practice. There's a kind of devotional aspect to it. Um, you know, the, the thing about Oroville being a cult, uh, yeah, that's come up in a few sort of like reviews of my book. Yeah. And uh, I was I was surprised, to be honest. In retrospect, I shouldn't have been surprised. Like it's, you know, people people need categories. And, and I yes. guess like, right. is it a kibbutz or is it a cult or what is it? So, and I certainly, you know, I it's, it's not that I don't see why anybody would characterize it as that, but people have asked me that. And I've just, I mean, look, I've written this book, which I wouldn't say is, it's not a takedown of the community, but it's certainly critical of certain aspects that happened. Uh, I don't feel, you know, that I'm going to be burned at the stake. Like, so I don't, you know, I, I, it, it doesn't feel like a cult to me. Um, and I always say, well, you know, I, I wouldn't bring my kids up in a cult, at which point some people look at me and think like, you know, false consciousness, he's fooling himself. Well, maybe, I don't know. You know, it's interesting. My experience is people from what we would call mainstream religions like to look at smaller groups, uh, spiritual groups and call them cults because, and, and, and when you really reflect on what they're saying, they're talking more about what they are and what those communities often are. I have uh, two uh, two uh, final questions for you. One one would be, uh, what do you hope people get out of the book? And is uh, uh, your community one that you would like and uh, uh, encourage people to uh, visit? I certainly would be very curious to visit there. What do I hope people get out of the book? I mean, I hope they get a good reading experience. I you know, <laughs> I worked hard. I worked hard on the writing. I, I don't mean to sound. Uh, flippant about it. I work hard on the writing, so I hope that they enjoy it as a read also. Um, but, you know, but like, I hope, I hope that they get a sense of the complexity of this place. I hope they get a sense of the organic reality of the place. Um, and I tried to be, I tried to be honest. I tried to say it's an amazing place. There are all kinds of amazing things happening. Yes, there are some pretty not amazing things that have happened. And there are some, you know, but that's to me, that's part of the kind of human charm and beauty of the place that, um, you know, where I come down is, is it a utopia? No. Has it achieved all that it set out to achieve? By no means has it. Um, but it's trying. And that's something. I mean, there are many places, I know many places in the world that are not trying. And so I really appreciate Oroville and Orovillians for really trying to create an alternative. Mm -hmm. And I was very grateful, by the way, for the reviews that saw that. Because there were reviews that would be very positive about the book, but then sort of be like dismissive of the community and why would he go back? But some of them were both positive about the book and despite seeing all the flaws in Oracle would say, but we still recognize why this place is special and why it needs to exist. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I, you know, hope people to get out of the book. Um, oh, the other question was about visitors. <coughs> yeah, I'm a little bit of a curmudgeon about tourism. I mean, so, you know, tourism has hit Oracle pretty hard, in my opinion, over the last decade. And I have to say one of the reasons that I moved to Oroville and that I love living there is a sense of kind of being cut off from the world and having a little right. space. And so I'm a little mixed about tourism. And I, I guess it's certainly, you know, people, people who have a kind of genuine interest in, in spirituality or in alternative living or ecological sort of stuff. Um, I think it's, it, they should visit and it's a wonderful place, but I am a little bit down on day trippers who come in to get the good French croissant or like, you know, the organic food. <laughs> I mean, Again, like some, you know, some of my friends in Orville think I'm too negative about this because it is part of the economy now and it helps sustains the place. Yeah. And I suppose for every hundred of those people that come in as day trippers, a couple of them will end up, you know, touching something deeper and staying. So, yeah, 
I'm, I, I've been known to be a little unfriendly to do this. <laughs> something something well, I'm trying to work on, you know. <laughs> well, I, I was there twice. And once uh, I was by myself and I stayed for a few days. I remember uh, spending time with uh, Astor Patel, who you probably know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then the second time last year, it was part of a tour group that I led, but it was a very spiritual group and they were put off by all the, the uh, tour buses. Yeah. <laughs> and we contributed to the economy. A lot of t-shirts were bought and um, lunch was, was had. And, um, so I guess I can understand the, the, the sort of mixed feelings about it. Um, Akash, you, you're, you're, the writing received tremendous reviews, even from people who may have gotten Oroville wrong. You're, you're, the writing in the book was uh, uh, received you know, great plaudits. Um, and part of that was that there's a kind of uh, mystery woven through it, which is about the circumstances of your wife's parents' deaths at a tragic early age. Can you tell us something about that and what you discovered? Because it kind of speaks to the uh, fanaticism of the place in those days. Yeah. So without giving away, you know, plot twists, um, yeah, the, 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 prep, the book is set up as a mystery. I mean, we know from the beginning that these two people have died young and that my wife, uh, their daughter doesn't understand the full circumstances of it or why, and that it's sort of grown into a mythology and legend in the community over time and that it's kind of shrouded in mystery. And so as I was unpacking this and I talked to you know hundreds of people, I read all their letters and diaries. I mean, you, you learn the specific circumstances of their deaths um, and I write about that, but I think more revealingly, at least for me, was you learn the way that their private fates intersected with the kind of communal trajectory. And so for us, the insight was that these were not just two isolated deaths of individuals who had gone too far into their faith and their yoga, which is you know, also true, but that really there was sort of forces at work in the community and there were tendencies in the community that I think pushed them into that corner. So I'm not saying that anybody in the community murdered them or anything, nothing like that happened, but they got caught up in the fanaticism of the era. They got caught up in a general tendency to take idealism too far. Um, you know, idealism is a beautiful thing, but the, the conclusion I come away with from this book is that it exists on a spectrum. Um, and, it, and just like faith uh, as well, you know, there is, there is a beautiful, noble aspect to it, and there is a destructive, harmful, fanatic aspect to it. Um, and so that intersection of the kind of individual fates and communal fates was, was sort of one of the main things I took away from, from figuring out their deaths. Thank you very much, Phil. Anything else? Yeah, I'm curious how going back and being in Oroville, uh, how how has it affected you and your wife in a spiritual way? Do you do you have a different spiritual outlook now than you might have when you first moved back to Oroville? Uh, how do you feel about the the teachings of Sri Aurobindo at this point as compared to the past? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And, and it was something that for me, you know, a lot of this happened through the book. Um, I, as I, as I referenced earlier, I mean, I, I start off as fairly skeptical 
about many of these things, which is not to say utterly negative about it, but I've seen sort of the dark side of faith and I've seen where it leads. And, and, and I'm, you know, I've, I've seen fanatics in my lifetime. And so I start off being skeptical and in retrospect, fairly closed to it. And um, I really surprised myself, and I, and I have this at the end of the book in an epilogue, I really surprised myself because I end up in a, in a much more kind of open place. And I say, you know, that it's not that I would, I wouldn't say that I have found faith. I think that would be overstating it, but it's like, I've seen a door open and I've understood that it's possible to walk through that door. And part of that is because talking to all these people and reading all these letters, I was really like, I was sort of forced to deal with and engage with the beauty of their own faith and their own quest, right? And, and it's, it's complicated because, you know, you referred to my wife's parents, they died because of their faith. But along the way, there was so much nobility and so much inspiration to their quest that I had to hold these two ideas in my head at the same time, the kind of destructive place they end up with the beauty of the quest. Um, and I think that that sort of reconnecting with that nobility and that beauty um, was, you know, it was, it was wonderful in a way. And, and it, it did change my, my relationship to faith um, and the pursuit of, of spirituality. Right. My right. take on, uh, from, uh, I have great admiration for Sri Aurobindo and uh, to the extent I can read him. Um, and um, he was a very practical guy and a very much in the world spiritual guy and would probably have great respect for your own, you know, clear thinking and rational approach to these, these matters. Uh, that, that's how I saw him anyway, because he was, he was a giant intellect and uh, uh, didn't seem to suffer fools uh, easily uh, in his day. Um, and my, my last question to you is, you know, uh, the, the Sri Aurobindo influence is felt in America largely in the San Francisco Bay Area, where uh, um, devotees of his uh, were teaching in his name and around his work going back into the, the 1950s. And the uh, California Institute of Integral Studies was uh, originally started as a, a sort of place to foster his uh, sort of east-west psychology of Sri Aurobindo. Do you have contact with with uh, the people there? Are they have they uh, you know contacted you or read the book? Um, not 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 specifically with that institution. No, I mean I know. You know, I know a lot of Orvillians and former Orvillians who live in the U.S. So, I, I mean, I have contact with, with people who, who are connected to and plugged into Sri Aurobindo and the Mother, but not, not specifically that institution. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And, uh, we look forward. We encourage the book. We'll have all the information about the book up. Great. And uh, uh, for those listening or watching, uh, if you have any questions, you can direct them to us. And we can forward them and uh, 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 fascinating and uh, something I'll be uh, looking into and excited about myself and, and uh, uh, really getting into the book and, and, uh, and very thought provoking. Okay. And one, uh, Akash, when I was uh, looking into, uh, when I was preparing for this interview and reading reviews, and when I went to your website, I realized I had heard your name in connection to your previous book, which I haven't right. read but wanted to. Tell us the name of the book about India and this modernization. 
Yeah, it's it's called uh, India Becoming. India Becoming. I remember reading reviews because I, you know, I've been to India many times and I've seen it becoming. <laughs> and, and so I want to see your take uh, on it. Now we'll have to get it. So we'll recommend that as well. Okay, Thanks for being with thank us. Thank you. Thank you thank for you coming both. on. Thanks a lot. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Take care.